So most professions have a process of certification. There's a way of assessing whether or not one is qualified to do the work that they intend to do. So, for example, doctors have their boards, lawyers have the bar exam, accountants have the CPA exam, financial advisors have a series of exams like Series 7, Series 63, maybe others. Of course, real estate agents, teachers, lifeguards, right, personal trainers, they all have certifications in their line of work. Careers from cosmetology to plumbing, right? They have licensing requirements. It seems that just about every profession has some way of accrediting those who are qualified and competent to do the work. Even, if you didn't know this, even postal workers have a series of exams that if they don't pass, they can't deliver your mail. So friends, what about Christians? What about Christian pastors? What about missionaries and other Christian workers? Do they have a kind of accreditation process? Is there a credentialing organization whose sole job is to vet the skill set of Christian workers? How can we determine? How can we identify one who is and is not qualified to do Christian work? Well, friends, it's questions like these that bring us back to our study this morning in the book of 2 Corinthians. I invite you to turn there. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And if you'd like to use one of the Bibles provided in the seat back before you, you can find 2 Corinthians 3 on page 965, page 965. And if you're just joining us, the Apostle Paul is has planted a church there in Corinth. He, he visited, he preached, he saw converts, planted the church there in his second missionary journey. And yet since he left, his relationship with them has soured. Right? Some have infiltrated the church and they're, they're turning the congregation that Paul planted against him. And among other, among other things, it seems that they claim a kind of credentialing They claim to possess a certain kind of authority, a kind of ministerial authority that they say Paul himself lacks. And so beginning in chapter 2, verse 14, all the way through chapter 7, verse 4, Paul's here defending his own life and ministry. And in many ways, we said last week how these chapters serve really as the heart of the letter. They're the the book's theological center of gravity here from 2.14 to 7.4. So friends, what certifications... What qualifications then, right? What credentials and what competencies mark true gospel ministry? Well, let's listen to the Apostle Paul, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, 
not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Well, friends, this section, I think, neatly divides just into two pieces. you got verses 1 to 3 and verses 4 to 6. And in 1 to 3, I think what we see are the the credentials for gospel ministry. And then in 4 to 6, we see the competency in gospel ministry. So that's going to serve as our two points right there. Credentials for gospel ministry, that's verses 1 to 3. And then competency in gospel ministry, verses 4 through 6. So first, let's think, verses 1 to 3, of credentials for gospel ministry. All right, credentials for gospel ministry. And verse 1 really begins with a rhetorical question, doesn't it? Are we beginning, Paul says, to commend ourselves again? Now, of course, Paul shouldn't have to commend himself again to the Corinthians. He spent, as we've seen, nearly two years with them. He loved them. He labored over them. He shouldn't have to be defending himself and explaining himself again as if now he's on trial. You know, in the presence of those speaking out against Paul, the Corinthian church should have been rushing to Paul's defense. They should have been supporting him. They should have been commending him. But evidently, that is not what's happening. You know, sadly, we live in a fallen world where those in positions of authority will abuse that authority. Sometimes those in positions of authority will take advantage of others. They will manipulate others. They will harm others. And friends, we can say clearly and unequivocally from Scripture, such abuse is wicked. And such abuse, especially from spiritual leaders, is especially wicked. But friends, moments like this where Paul finds himself remind us that abuse and betrayal, well, they can go both ways, can't they? Those in authority can abuse And those in authority can be abused. Need we look any further than the life of Jesus? Or even here in Paul's own ministry? Paul has not wronged this church. He's done nothing but love them and shepherd them. And they have, in response, effectively rejected him. Nobody is there to stand up, it seems, and defend Paul, so he's left to do it on his own. You know, when Paul was saved on the Damascus Road, Christ promised Paul that he would suffer considerably for the sake of Christ's name. And, you know, I read that, and maybe you read that, and you immediately think, oh yeah, Paul suffered much physically. And it's true, he did. But perhaps not as great as the spiritual and as the emotional suffering inflicted by the very churches and the very congregants that he had loved and labored over. So, you know, at the very beginning of his ministry, what do we see? We see how Mark deserted him. And at the end of his ministry, if you just read 2 Timothy, we read of Figalus and Hermogenes who, what, 2 Timothy 1, they abandoned him. And then Demas, we read, 2 Timothy 4, who, what, deserted him. And there at the end of 2 Timothy, right near the very end of Paul's ministry, he's in prison, and we read that no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Friends, what a crushing way to end a life and a ministry. All deserted me. No one came to stand by me. Paul's life here is truly patterned after the life of Christ. 
you know, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we walk with Christ, sometimes we will find ourselves deserted by those who should be defending and commending us. You know, at the risk of sounding self-serving, it's a reminder to us that, yes, pastors are not to lord their authority over the sheep. No, instead they're to, to love sacrificially, to labor for the sheep. And yet it's also true that congregations are to respond similarly to their shepherds, receiving them as Christ's gifts to be treasured, right? Just as we did a moment ago and receiving Cliff to be an elder among us. Now, I'm not saying this because in any way I feel personally mistreated by you. This is not like pastor in passive aggressive moment. That's not, that's not the point here. It is only to say that, that we need to have that category and we need and want and should pray to see both sheep and shepherds working together, laboring together in mutual relationships of love and respect, right? That's what we should want to see. That's what the congregation there in Corinth was not doing with Paul. And so at this point, Paul's basically saying, though I shouldn't have to, right, apparently I need to start all over again with you, begin our relationship from scratch, Apparently, I need to rebuild credibility in light of all these accusations being made against me. And it seems one of these accusations is that Paul lacked proper qualifications. That seems one of the, the accusations being made, right? He didn't have, verse 1, he didn't have these letters of recommendation. Now, we hear that phrase, and we're, we're familiar with that phrase. You know, if you've applied to a college or applied to a scholarship, right, you've had to fill out or have others fill out really for you letters of recommendation. Maybe if you've applied to certain professional positions, they've required letters of recommendation from others. And when I was considering serving here as a church, right, this church wanted letters of recommendation from other pastors on, on my time pastoring and, and my experience pastoring, all the rest. Right, a letter of recommendation, what does it do? It vouches for us. They, they sort of certify and verify and validate who we are before others who may not know us as well. And such letters, friends, they were common in the ancient world. Right? They were often provided to individuals who were traveling elsewhere, going to a new location. And that letter that that individual would carry with them would serve as sort of a formal introduction as they came to this new locale. And it also provided a kind of endorsement and encouragement that those in that new locale would receive this individual and support them and provide for them and care for them. So in the Bible, 3 John is basically a letter of recommendation. Right? We know in, in Acts that Apollos was sent to Achaia with a letter of recommendation, Acts 18. So Paul commends Phoebe in the letter to the church there in Rome, Romans 16, verse 1. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, literally a, a deacon, a diaconon of the church at Sancrea, that you may, what does Paul say? You may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. You know, I like history, so sorry, you're going to have a little history lesson. That's where we actually get transfer letters in Baptist life. I know this is something you all stay awake up at night wondering how did those things come about. Right? Well, that's where they come from. You know, if you're a local pastor in 1850, 
and a new family, a new individual comes to you and they would like to join your church, you can't just call up or Zoom or text or whatever the pastor that they came from, right? No. So instead, the church that sent them, if they were a member in good standing, would send them with a kind of transfer letter, a letter of recommendation to that new congregation, to that new pastor saying, listen, these folks are legit. Like, we commend them to you. That's where that whole process comes about of transfer letters in Baptist life. And Paul, the point is, he's not opposed to these letters. But he's saying here, do we, after all our time with you, do we really need letters like this? As some do. See what he notes there, as some do. Right, that implies Paul's opponents, right, they had their letters. Plural. Likely many of them. They had those letters and they used those letters throughout the congregation for legitimacy, for authority, even for a kind of superiority, it seems, over Paul. They proudly collected such letters, kind of like politicians collect political endorsements. Right? What does a politician want? Endorsements from this group and that group. And then they, they proudly, right, they boast of those endorsements. That, it seems, is very much what Paul's opponents are doing. Well, where would these letters have come from? You know, in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says his opponents are commending themselves, though he's going to say they do it by the wrong standards. And in chapter 11, 22, he seems to refer to his opponents as Hebrews. And given how Paul in the rest of chapter 3 is really going to contrast the new covenant of the Spirit with the old covenant of, of, you know, upon these Gentile Christians, seems to be implying that his opponents are trying in some way to make them Jews, to sort of roll back the clock of, of God's plan in history. We know from Acts 15, we know from Galatians, we know that he, from the book of Hebrews, all of these issues of Gentiles and how do they relate to Judaism, that was a big issue in the life of the church. And Paul, it seems, is saying, in the midst of all this, do we now need to show you Corinthians, do we need to show you letters in order to take us seriously? Or do we need to show you letters in order to justify our ministry among you once again? Right after all this time, has our relationship so deteriorated? Has it become that bad? Has it sunk to such a low that I have to call upon others outside to vouch for me? You guys should know better, you know me. So Paul says, you know what? If that's the game you want to play, fine, we'll play that game. You want a letter? Here it is. The letter, he says, it's you. You are the letter, he says in verse 2. You yourselves, Paul writes, are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Right there, Paul's saying, you Corinthians... You are the validation of my ministry, right? Their existence, the very reality of a church in Corinth proves Paul's validity and his legitimacy and his credibility as an apostle, right? There is a church in Corinth, right? Corinth of all places. So, you know, back in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, remember what Corinth was like. Remember what the Corinthians came from. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, he says to them, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. You know, we tend to think our generation is the only generation confused about sex and sexuality, but not so. The gospel, the Bible, has always been countercultural when it comes to sex. 
At any rate, nor thieves, Paul says, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None will inherit the kingdom of God. And what does Paul say then? And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Right? And such, Paul says, in describing this list of sins, Paul says, and such were some of you. Friends, Paul isn't speaking abstractly when he says that. He has real people with real faces in his mind as he writes those letters. He knew them. He knew the lives they came out of. Paul's saying, you want to talk credentials. Paul's credentials are not on paper. They're in people. They're in people. Friends, one's legitimacy in Christian ministry, it's not finally measured in the number of sort of letters after their name, like MDiv, THM, PhD. It's not measured in the fancy degrees that proudly hang on their walls. It's not finally in ordination certificates or in licensure letters. Our credibility as ministers is not measured on paper, but in persons. Not letters, Paul says, but changed lives. So if you're here and in some sense and in some way you desire to do Christian ministry, maybe even in in a vocational sense, Maybe you want to pastor one day, or you'd like to teach in some capacity, or you'd like to do overseas and do missions, right? Seminary degrees are worthless pieces of paper if it's not followed up by investing in people, by building yourself into people. The goal in the Bible is always changed lives. It's not about all the papers you can write and get published. It's not the books that you have translated in other languages. It's not that. It's transformation Paul's after. And that's what Paul's highlighting. He's not highlighting here his own education. Paul's not highlighting all of his accomplishments in the academy. Now later when they want to play that game, he'll play that game too. But he's not doing that here. When he's talking about his credentials, that's not where he goes. It's not the academy. It's not the conferences he speaks at. Again, it's not all the book deals he's inked. That's not it. It's people, Paul says. People are the work. And not just people. But it's people in churches, right? That you is plural. He's writing to a church because all of Paul's work and efforts and labor are centered around the establishment of healthy local churches. Which is why, again, just to drive this home, missions and really any, any ministry work ought to have as its end and as its goal a faithful, healthy church. Paul's saying the church there in Corinth That itself is proof of his credibility. Not just converts in Corinth, but churchmen. That's the proof, Paul says. Right? It's why our evangelism, our discipling, all of our teaching, it ought to be done within or it ought to be directly pointing people toward the local church. Otherwise, we entirely miss God's plan. We entirely misunderstand what Paul himself was about. And Paul says this letter Their changed lives, he says, is what he carries about in his own heart, he says. The Corinthians aren't merely names on a membership roll to Paul. 
They're in a place much more valuable to him. They're, they're right there at the center of his own heart. That speaks to Paul's affection for the congregation, his love for the congregation. Right? One who doesn't just lead them, but again, loves them. Who doesn't just work for them, but weeps alongside them in the course of his ministry. Friends, those are the kind of pastors, those are the kind of Christian workers we want to see. We want to be raising up. Friends, what a great way to pray for me, that such would mark my own life and ministry. What a great way to pray for our elders. What a great way to pray specifically for Cliff, as we just prayed for him a moment ago. You know, where there is theological rigor and tender relationships, right? Fidelity and fondness. You want to see both of those things, the rigor and the tender relationships. Because if you have theological rigor alone, well, that will tend to lead to really cold and proud churches. And that's going to be a risk for us. It's a risk in my own heart. But if we just have tender relationships alone, well, that's going to lead to weak, to watered-down churches that finally bear no distinct witness to Christ. Paul is modeling both, right? Theological rigor and a kind of tender relationships, both those things born out. And friends, that ought to mark our churches, and it ought to start right here in our own hearts and amongst us. Notice too what Paul says their lives are his letter, verse 2, to be known and read by all. You know, you think of a letter written on parchment with ink, what it's, it's, it's visible to one or maybe one or two others looking over a shoulder. Whereas Paul says the Corinthians are living letters, And they're visible to all, as in they're recognized and can be read by all. You know, in Japan, there are a group of people called Kakure Kirishitan. I'm sure I'm butchering that. Like Luke Godfrey, Hayden Beckwith, you guys can probably correct my Japanese right there. Terrible, I'm sure. But the, the Japanese term means hidden Christian. It means hidden Christians. Because there was a group of those who held themselves out to be Christians, but in centuries where Christianity was deeply persecuted in Japan, they withdrew from their Christian communities, and instead of choosing martyrdom, instead they hid their religion, and many joined Buddhist temples or Shinto shrines, and they disguised their own beliefs, right? Hidden Christians. And sometimes today we might refer to to other movements similar to that, sort of insider movements, where you can ostensibly convert to Christianity without really ever having to give up, say, your Muslim identity. But notice, Paul says, there in Corinth, where the persecution was heavy, Paul says they are a letter known to all, recognized and read by all. Paul doesn't really seem to have a category for a secret believer, for a kind of closet Christian. Eventually, in Paul's mind, it seems, every Christian has to come out of the closet and go public, right? They do that informally in baptism and then by gathering with other Christians, and they eventually evidence that finally and just on a day-to-day basis, just in a changed life, in a transformed life, which is to say, friends, If it's not obvious to others that you're a Christian, you're probably not a Christian. If it's not obvious to others that you are a Christian, 
you're probably not a Christian. Now, just to be really clear, probably is important. I can't see your heart. The Lord knows all things, right? But Christians evidence their Christianity and transformed lives. That's just something we see clearly from Scripture. So let that sink in. And I don't just mean like showing up at church on occasion. Anyone can do that. I did that on occasion as a non-Christian. Right? We're not Christians just because we say we are. We're not Christians just because we might think a few fond things about Jesus. You're not a Christian if you persist in sin and don't persist unto the end. And if that seems a bit harsh, maybe, maybe a bit even mean-spirited, where's all this love you just talked about, Brad, right? If that seems a bit harsh and mean-spirited to you, I took all that directly from the teachings of Jesus. It's exactly what he says. The only thing worse than not being a Christian is thinking you are when you're not. And Jesus warns about that, too. Genuine Christians live genuinely changed lives. And if it's not evident that your life has genuinely changed, it's probably evidence that your heart itself has never changed. It's never been regenerated, never truly been converted and transformed. And that's what Paul gets to in verse 3. He says there are letters written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You know, Paul right there, he's contrasting the powerlessness of this inert ink, right, on paper versus the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, we read. Right? He's contrasting the old covenant and what the old covenant represented by the, the commandments, right, the tablets of stone, what that old covenant could not do. He's contrasting that with what the new covenant written on the human heart could do and would do and does do. And he's going to develop that thought a little bit more in verses 4 to 6. He's going to continue it throughout the remainder of the chapter as well. But again, here Paul's just highlighting how genuine Christianity reflects this radical change of heart that results in a radical change of life. Not instantaneous, not perfectly, but progressively and slowly it does. You know, Christianity is not just a veneer of morality that we just glue to the exterior of our own lives. It's not a quick coat of paint that we throw over just planks of rotting wood. It's a profound change of heart. And when Paul speaks of the heart, he's not just speaking of the emotional state. The heart in, in Scripture is, is emotion, it's mind, it's volition, it's will, it's all of those things together. And all of that leads to profound changes of behavior. Right? The, the change isn't simply exterior, it's interior. It's, it's true heart transformation. So friend, just ask yourself, does that kind of change describe you? Again, not perfectly, but in some capacity does it describe you? Or is it possible that maybe somewhere along the way you've misunderstood Christianity? misunderstood the kind of heart change that Jesus was after in John 3. Paul's saying the presence of such transformed lives in these Corinthians, he says that is all the commendation, that is all the credentialing that he needs. Not more letters, their changed lives. That tells the story right there. And friends, that leads us secondly to the competency 
to competency in gospel ministry. So we thought about the credentials for it, now the competency, secondly, in it, verses 4 to 6. And Paul continues in verse 4, and he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Confidence toward God, or as the CSB or NIV read, right, confidence before God. And friends, we can run right over that statement, confidence before God. But stop and reflect for a moment. That is an amazing statement. Confidence we can have before God. You know, most of us, many of us, we don't have confidence that we can stick to that diet for one week, let alone a month, right? Finish Whole30, who actually does that? Follow through on that routine. Many of us don't have the confidence we can get the date that we want for the dance or just wake up on time. I set three alarms this morning because I did not have confidence I was going to wake up when I needed to. So friends, to have confidence before a holy and a just and a terrifying and awe-inspiring God, a God before whom the whole earth trembles and nations quake, we can have confidence, Paul says, before this God. Confidence that we'll be okay. Confidence that we won't be crushed like a bug or rejected by him. Confidence that we won't be condemned by him. Friends, that should seem utterly unthinkable to us that we could possess as sinners that kind of confidence before the holy God of the Bible. You know, we don't think we have much confidence we're getting into the college of our choice or into the sorority or fraternity of our choice, or maybe the job and the career of our choice. But somehow we're under the mistaken assumption that one day we're just going to stroll into the presence of a holy God and everything's going to be fine. That's a crazy notion. I don't know where we get, well, I do know where we get it. But it's a deeply unhelpful one. It's a dangerous one. And friends, that's why so many religions actually tell you you can't have confidence. You can't really know, right? Such confidence before God, that's just hubris, that's just pride. You know, that's actually what Catholicism teaches. It's why so much fear and doubt and suspicion reigned at the time of the Protestant Reformation, right? You could even say Catholics then and even now are very postmodern about salvation in that you can never really know, you can never finally be sure. And many religions still teach that today. But, you know, Martin Luther, the reformer, called that the damnable doctrine of doubt. Isn't that just fun to say? Okay, it's the sum maybe. The damnable doctrine of doubt. Because Paul understood, and Martin Luther understood, because the Bible teaches that we can, in fact, know. We can, in fact, have confidence before God. Well, how do we have that? Well, what does Paul say? It only comes how it comes, by what means, through Christ, Paul says. That confidence he has before God comes through Christ. For God, as we've said, it's as we've sung this morning, he is a holy God. He takes no part in sin, nor will he dwell God in the presence of sin, which means we as sinners cannot dwell with God in our natural state. We just cannot. And no amount of good deeds we can do will ever erase all the bad deeds that we have done, let alone all the things we have said, let alone all the things that we have not said, but yet we have thought, right? That list is infinite. 
which is why Jesus Christ came. It's why the perfect Son of God came. And as we will sing, he had no trace or stain of sin. So when Jesus was crucified on the cross, it was not for his sins that he bled and died, but it was rather for the sins of all of those who would repent of their sins, as in turn from them, see the wrong and error of them, and entrust themselves to Christ. And then Christ rose from the grave, proving that he had once and for all conquered sin, which is why Paul and you and me, you and I, we all can have confidence because salvation does not finally rest in what we do, but on what? What God has already done in Christ for us. That's where our salvation lies, right? Religion says, do this. And the problem is that this is never done. Christianity says, believe in this because the work's already done. That's what Christ has done. And friends, that right there is the heart of the message of Christianity. That's why Paul, the sinner that he was, the persecutor that he was, in that condition still could say, I have confidence before God. And he'll go on in verse 5. And he'll say, not though that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. You know that word sufficient? We can translate that adequate or competent. So that's as the CSB and NIV do, competent. And it brings us right back, if it sounds familiar, right back to that question last week that Paul raises in 2.16. Who is sufficient, i.e. who is competent for these things? Right, same word used there, 2.16 is right here who is competent for these things, to minister this glorious gospel of grace? Well, Paul's now answering here that question he raised in 2.16. And he's going to say his competence, just like his conversion, just like his commission to ministry, all that, he's saying all that rests in God, and it comes from God. You know, it's likely that expression, verse 5, not that we are sufficient. It's likely that's an allusion all the way back to Moses, If you go back to the very beginning of Moses' ministry, all the way back in Exodus 4.10, and if you look at the Greek translation there of uh, of Exodus 4.10, well, if you remember, don't worry about the Greek. Just If you remember how Moses responded when God said, listen, I want you to lead my people. Moses was a little reluctant, wasn't he? He says, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. So that expression, I am not eloquent, Translated in the Greek, it's the exact same expression that Paul uses here. I am not competent. Same exact language. So it seems that Paul's saying he is no more competent to execute his ministry and his commission than Moses was competent to do his. Which is why the Lord will have to say to Moses in Exodus 4.11, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You know, it's interesting, these opponents were likely of Paul, likely citing and claiming they were like the true inheritors and progenitors of of Moses. Like they, they likely represented what Mosaic law should reflect for the people of Paul's day. They're priding themselves after being after Moses And remember, they're critiquing Paul because he's simple and plain in speech. And Paul's going to say, I am not sufficient. 
And he's going to grab that language of Moses and say, hey, I'm going to flip the tables on you. My ministry, if you stop and think about it, reflects a lot more of Moses than yours does. My ministry, Paul says, and Moses are in fact united. Not only are we similar perhaps in speech in some ways, in its own simplicity, right? We don't put on airs, but in recognizing our sufficiencies in God. Friends, that's what all the great prophets recognized. Gideon and Judges 6, Isaiah and Isaiah 6, Jeremiah and Jeremiah 1. Each of them recognized their insufficiency for the task that God had for them. Which is why God makes the insufficient sufficient. It's why he makes the inadequate adequate. It's why he makes the incompetent competent and the unqualified qualified. That's what God's in the business of doing. The beginning of all gospel sufficiency is by recognizing our own insufficiency, just as Paul does. You know, the famous missionary Hudson Taylor was once asked and he reflected on why God chose to use him. Why he said, God chose me because I was weak enough and quiet enough and little enough to be used by him and thus to glorify him. Because it is God, verse 6, who has made us, God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So right there, Paul's picking up on that theme he introduced back in verse 3, where he's contrasting the, the new covenant of the Spirit versus the old covenant of the letter. So he's contrasting the written law, given on tablets of stone, all the way back in Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, with the indwelling of the Spirit and with the law being written on human hearts that happened there at Pentecost in Acts 2. And again, he's going to continue this line of thought in the following verses. And so when Paul says the letter kills, it's important we recognize what he's not saying. He's not saying the law, right, the Ten Commandments. He's not saying those are in any way evil. He's not saying they're in some way even deficient. He's saying the law kills not because it's deficient, but because we're deficient, because we can't keep it. So in Romans 7, Paul will say the law is holy, He'll go on to call it spiritual. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? I.e., Paul says, is the law the problem? And he says, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what was good. Right? Paul's saying the law wasn't defective. It's that our hearts, well, they're dead in sin. You know, a few, uh, a few years ago, traveling cross-country, um, my wife and I, we took our kids to the, uh, the Petrified National Forest out there in northeast Arizona. I think after a few hours, our kids were wondering what we were staring at rocks in the desert for, right? Hours and hours of rocks and deserts, and we go to this particular area to look at more rocks. At any rate. But if you've ever been, uh, it is, you know, it's a forest, once a vibrant, thriving forest, that is now literally a desert. It is dead. And what was living, right, all that cellular structure, it broke down and was replaced, right, all that wood as it broke down was replaced with minerals that over prolonged periods of time and pressure, well, those minerals crystallized like stone and become, became what, you know, they become what we call petrified wood, where that which was once living is, is hardened 
and it turns to stone. Well, friends, that's exactly what it is with our hearts and sin. Our hearts in sin are petrified. Sin has turned our hearts to stone. And so the law, it reveals God's righteousness. And the law exposes to us our own sinfulness. And the law ought to leave us deeply longing for forgiveness. But it's powerless to change us. The law can't change us. Which is why the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 would prophesy that God would have to make a new covenant with his people. And unlike the old covenant, he, we read, would put the law within him. God said he, was put, he would put his law, my law, he says, within them. And I will, God says, write it on their hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33. It's what we read as well in Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you, God says, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, right? Those petrified hearts. I will remove them from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So right there, what we're seeing is that what the old covenant prescribes, well, that's what the new covenant provides in the spirit. So what the letter demands of us That's what the Spirit does in us, right? What the letter, the law requires of us, that's what the Spirit renews in us. And evidently, Paul's opponents were in some way calling the Corinthians back to the requirements of the letter and ignoring what the Spirit was doing in renewing them, right? Turning those clocks back, perhaps because they themselves didn't have the Spirit. So brothers and sisters, just we need to be careful that the same isn't said of us. We need to recognize, as Paul did, that our own gospel sufficiency does not rest in how well we seek to keep the law finally, but our gospel sufficiency rests in recognizing our insufficiency, right? Whether or not we're thinking of marriage, whether or not we're thinking in parenting, in evangelism, in our fight against sin, against sexual immorality, against addictions, against laziness, against passivity, against anger, and all those things. We are not sufficient in and of ourselves and of our own power to fight, right? We're not competent in ourselves. It's not merely a matter of human will and work, right? That won't do the trick, Paul says. It's not enough. Look at the example of Israel. It didn't work. You know, for water polo, our coaches used to make us do particular drills, uh, and one of them was just like to, to tread water, but you know, we call it egg beatering, and you gotta go down and forth across the pool, and you gotta do it not just with your hands in the water, because honestly, that's pretty easy, um, but lift your hands up, like high above your heads. So your hands are straight up, and you gotta keep your hands up, and that's harder, and then you know what they would do is they'd take one-gallon jugs of water, and they'd put them into your raised hands and just make you keep going, until your legs scream and your head starts to bob and you start to fall under and you basically start drowning. And then at some point you'll drop it and you'll cough and you'll, you know, you'll recover. So I, I just use that as an illustration of what it's look like, what it looks like to attempt to minister out of our own self-sufficiency. 
right? Yeah, maybe we think we can keep it up for a little while. Maybe we can think we can keep that one-gallon jug like above our head for a moment while everyone's looking at us like, you're clearly drowning. Friends, just imagine they take that one-gallon jug out and they drop like a few 45-pound plates in your hand, right? You're going to sink immediately. You can't do that. None of us can do that. And yet that's what it's like when we try to minister out of our own self-sufficiency, right? When we seek the Christian life without prayer, when we wake and rarely give attention, whether or not it's to prayer or to God's word, when we ignore the fellowship with other believers, when we seek to live without the counsel of other believers and push them out of our own lives, when we seek to live without the encouragement and the accountability of imperfect, yes, but necessary local churches in our lives. Friends, we drown every time when we try to do that. We can't do that on our own. God must provide what we don't naturally possess. He must supernaturally grant it through his spirit and then through the means of grace that the spirit uses and all those examples I just gave. Friends, that's where our competence for ministry lies Not in us, but in God who gifts his people with his spirit. So friends, I ask again, how do we determine? How do we identify one who is and is not qualified for gospel work? You know, the temptation so often in the church is to look to the world, to adopt the the patterns of the world, to judge by the world's standards. And so what do we tend to do? We look for, for letters behind one's name, right? For degrees framed on walls, ordination, licensing, all that. We look to those things. And friends, it's not to say those things are wrong. But they alone don't qualify one for ministry. You know, maybe some of us judge ministries by, you know, by nickels and noses. Right? By the money we bring in and by the people we fill in our buildings. And for too many, that's all, sadly, too many Christians care about. But Paul rejects all those metrics, all those notions. At the end of the day, Paul says, listen, True credentials are not found on paper, they're found in people, right? They're not in letters, they are in transformed lives. His ministry, Paul's, was built, yes, around theological rigor, and it was built in tender relationships with one another. And his competence, friends, he understood he was no more competent for his ministry than Moses was his. Everything rested in his inadequate adequacy, in his insufficient sufficiency, in his incompetent competency, trusting that God would supply his every need. And if we find such a person, recognize that when you found such a person, you have not just found and identified a faithful Christian minister. You've actually come to understand what it means to be a faithful Christian. Let's pray.